Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, folks, we are rewinding back, well, just only about a year and a half ago, and it's going to get less and less rewinding, uh, rewindish from here. Today, we're going back to December the 18th, 2018, uh, episode 2348. Self-ownership over political activism as we continue our series while I am in Florida battling with sharks and snook and tarpon uh, with the Insurrection series. And uh, these are, you know, I don't know if you've been noticing, but every episode is a little less further back in time. I started fairly recent in this series. And part of it is because whenever I've gone away, I've always played segments from the Insurrection series uh, for you guys on Rewinds. And so when I went back to, like, how far back do I have to go to where I can be as far back as possible without ever using it for a rewind, it started out in about 2015. Uh, so we've been, uh, we've been working through these coming forward in the future. And today is one of my favorite ones I ever did, self-ownership over political activism. Again, since I have a whole series of new content for you with the 13 Steps, to getting what you want in your life, to actually getting that done. I'm not really doing a lot of uh, you know new info on the topic at hand. I just want to kind of point out, though, that this is one of those instances where you really do benefit from what I teach. I try to always make that the case. I, I really do. If, if I'm teaching something that doesn't benefit you, I, I, I'm probably wasting my time and yours, right? In the words of uh, Mr. Spicoli, and since I'm here and you're here, doesn't that mean it's our time, right? And it is our time. But when I, when I say really benefit, I think this is one of those things that people spend so much of their time, so much of their energy, wrapped up in things that they don't control. And when I say political activism here, I, I'm talking about what most people think is political acti activism, which is arguing with your friends on Facebook and voting once every two years or whatever it is for you. For every year, if you make every single vote and special referendum and all, uh, and maybe writing your senators or whatever. And if you're a long-term listener, if you listened all the way back when I was in the car doing this, I used to actually suggest things like calling your senator or writing your congressman or what have you. And I, I just, like, I realized over the years that it was a lot like writing a letter to Santa Claus. It might make you feel better. But it wasn't going to really change what you were going to get on Christmas Day. Like, there's actually things you can do that will change. Like, when it comes down to a Christmas gift somebody's going to give you, there's things you can do to actually influence that. But writing a letter to the big red fat guy that doesn't actually exist, you know, it doesn't work. doesn't do anything. You call your congressman all you want. It doesn't do anything. And what it really comes down to is even when you get a law passed or, or what have you, The average American's life doesn't change much at all. It really doesn't. There's so many laws now that another law is almost like just white noise. It's like they're doing something to be seen. It doesn't mean I'm not concerned. Again, they are in my circle of concern. But I know that spending my time with my wife right now while I'm away from you guys is going to do a lot. It's going to be something that when I lay on my deathbed, I'm not going to say I wish I would have taken less vacations, for, for one. I know that all the work that I did... This winter, 
for instance, with just hydroponics so that you guys could start using that in your lives. And all of the stuff that I've gotten from people, look, I, I'm feeding my family with this now. I know that matters more than writing a letter to John Cornyn. I know it does. I absolutely know it does. I know that when I get an email from one of you guys saying, hey, I started this business and this is what I'm doing, or hey, I started my site, I know that matters more. And I know it matters more for me, and I know it matters more for you. So that's what this episode's about in many ways, and I've got a bunch of good stuff for you in it. This was a good episode, and again, not that far back into the past. My step for you today, the 13 stomps, right, is I stomp on you to get you to actually do this stuff for yourself. This one's going to be a pretty easy one to do, but boy, it's where the rubber starts to meet the road, and it, it, it just happens to fit this episode perfectly. And when I put the 13 steps together, I did not correlate them to episodes. It's kind of like John Adam picking music that happens to go with the show. But dig this. Step seven, do a deep analysis as to what concerns you, what you influence, and what you control. I want you to sit down today and I want you to think about everything that, you, that, that you're worried about in any way, shape, or form. And I want you to rate those things. And so... If you give it a zero, you have no influence over it at all. There's nothing you can do to change that thing at all. And it doesn't really affect your life. Got that? Don't influence it, and it doesn't really affect you. You just care. Let's say whether your football team's going to win the Super Bowl would be an example. Unless you bet money, it doesn't really affect your life at all. It is just for entertainment. Okay? If you have no influence over it, but there are things you can do for yourself that are related to it, i.e., I'm concerned about that hurricane off the coast, and paying attention to it will at least let you know to prepare for it and say there are things within your influence that you can do. Like, I'm worried about the stock market. At least I can move my investments. Okay, put a one next to it. If it's something that you can actually influence, something that maybe you don't fully control, but you can influence, I'm really worried about the decisions my son is making. Unless you're going to lock him up, put a ball and chain around his leg, and keep him in his bedroom, you cannot control that, but you can influence it. Put a two next to it. If it is in your circle of control, i.e., you can actually do something to make it happen or prevent it from happening. Like, I really think we need to have a bigger garden. Well, all that separates you from that is a shovel and you're asked doing some work. Put a three next to it. That's all I need you to do today is write down everything that you're thinking about, that you're concerned about, that you, you know, anything in your life and rank it. Zero, one, two, three. And then I want you to go through those and I want you to think about it. And whatever comes to you, I want you to write it down. And I want you to try to start to put some things in some order. The things that are in your circle of control, I want you to start thinking about which ones of those make sense to do first or to act on first and whatever it is. Same thing with your twos, your influences, things that you can influence. And then what do you have to do to influence them? So you see, it's the interesting thing. What you have to do to influence the thing goes all the way to a three. That's in your circle of control. 
right? Then go to your ones. Your things that are like, hey, I'm worried about that storm out there. So what are the things you can do about it? Those become threes. And rank them in order of importance. And just start running your life this way. You won't have to always write it down. If you do, this is a skill that you develop. And all of a sudden what happens is you come up with a thought and you think about this thing and you immediately prioritize, prioritize it in your life. And you get so much more done. I have people sometimes that ask me, like, dude, you're not even 50 yet. And you talk about your old life and your old life is now a decade ago. So you weren't even 40. And all this crap that you did, how do you get that much done? This is how. You ignore that which you cannot control, and you do that which you can, and you prioritize based on which will have the biggest impact in your life. Instead, most people have their priorities based on other people pulling the strings. In other words... I'm going to go to work because they'll fire me if I don't. It immediately becomes your top priority. And I'm not saying it shouldn't be, especially at certain points in your life. It was for me. But when you go to work, how about you perform the same analysis? I have to do these things because they keep me from getting fired. So I'll do all these things first. If I do these things, they might help me advance. So I'll do all these things second. And people really appreciate it when I do these things but they probably won't get me advanced to promote it or prevent me, present me new opportunities, so I'll do them third. And is that right for you? I don't know. I don't know how your, your job works. If, like, you can't even do that, if, like, all I do is come here and pull this lever or whatever, you need to start looking for some other opportunities, and that might need to have a three next to it and go really high on your list. Or maybe not. It depends. My favorite way to answer any question, you know that. It depends. So today is designed to help you uncover what it depends on and what you can do about it and how that relates to how much effort you put into it. So there you go. Do a deep analysis as to what concerns you and what influence, what you influence and what you control. With that, let's go ahead and uh, rewind back again to when? December 18th, 2018. Self-ownership over political activism. Before we dive into stuff today, let's take a look at this day in history. This day we're going back to 1620, and it's oddly oddly matching, I guess, with our subject today, what's going on on 1620 on December the 18th. On December 18th, 1620, the British ship Mayflower docked at modern-day Plymouth, Massachusetts, and its passengers prepared to begin their new settlement, Plymouth Colony. The famous Mayflower story began in 1606 when a group of reform-minded Puritans in Nottinghamshire, England, founded their own church separate from the state-sanctioned Church of England. Accused of treason, they were forced to leave the country and settle in the more tolerant Netherlands. After 12 years of struggling to adapt to make a decent living, the group sought financial backing from some London merchants to set up a colony in America. On September 1620, 102 passengers dubbed Pilgrims by William Bladford, uh, a passenger who would become a first governor of Plymouth Colony, crowned, uh, on the, crowded on the Mayflower to begin a long, hard journey to new life in a new world. On November 11, 1620, Mayflower anchored at what is now Provincetown Harbor, Cape Cod, 
Before going ashore, 41 male passengers, heads of family, single men, and three male servants signed the famous Mayflower Compact, agreeing to submit to a government chosen by common consent and to obey all laws for the good of the colony. Over the next month, several small scouting groups were sent ashore to collect firewood and scout out a good place to build a settlement. Around December 10th, one of the groups found a harbor they liked on the west side of Cape Cod Bay. They returned to the Mayflower to tell the other passengers, but bad weather prevented them from docking until the 18th. After exploring the region, the settlers chose a cleared area previously occupied by members of the local Native American tribe, the Wanapalg. The tribe had abandoned the village several years earlier after an outbreak of European disease. That winter from 1620 to 1621 was brutal as the Pilgrims struggled to build their settlement, find food, and ward off sickness. By spring, 50 of the original 102 Mayflower passengers were dead. The remaining settlers made contact with returning members of the Wampog tribe, and in March they signed a peace treaty with the tribal chief, uh, Massasoit. Aided by the Wampog, especially the English-speaking Squanto, the Pilgrims were able to plant crops, especially corn and beans, that were vital to their survival. The Mayflower and his crew left Plymouth to return to England on April 5, 1621. Over the next several decades, more and more settlers made the trek across the Atlantic to Plymouth, which gradually grew into a prosperous shipbuilding and fishing center. In 1691, Plymouth was incorporated as a new Massachusetts Bay Association, ending its history as an independent colony. Um, we're going to talk about self-ownership and concepts of libertarianism, non-aggression principle today, and we lead off with a story about people that came here for freedom. Freedom for themselves. Freedom for themselves. Freedom to live the way they wanted to live and under the laws that they wanted to enact, the rules that they wanted to enact for themselves. They didn't decide there was some grand social contract no one had ever seen before, Rather, they all decided that they would agree to live under common principles of governance, self-directed governance, uh, and that they would agree to that prior to choosing to live together. At this point, I'm sure any single one of them was free to say, no, I don't want to do this and go back to England when the ice melted away, or to go off on their own and try to make it on their own. These people chose to do this. This was the establishment that would eventually become at one, one day the United States of America. And somehow things went terribly wrong along the way. Just think about that, and I'll let you apply it yourself as we go through today's episode. So let's start out with this concept of the non-aggression principle and self-ownership and look at them differently than most people tend to want to look at them. Most people that want to advocate for an anarcho-society, which means without rulers, not without rules, very much what the Mayflower colony had, or the Plymouth colony had, uh, would be an example of common ideology, common belief systems, and they set the rules for themselves. That was much more close to a true anarcho-society than what people think of. But when people want to talk about this and advocate for it, say we can do it everywhere, all together all the time, right now, they want to talk about what other people should do. So if everybody followed the nap, we don't need a government. I believe that's true, but not everybody's going to do it. And then self-ownership you know, if everybody respected self-ownership, well, they would have to follow the NAP. See, it's kind of a catch-22 there. You can't believe in self-ownership and not follow the NAP, because if you believe you own yourself, then you have to believe that other people own their self. So since they own their self, you can't hurt them and take their stuff. You have no right to it. 
And plenty of people actually agree with these principles. They just can't figure out how society would work underneath them because there's bad people that do bad things. And then the other side of it is, well, you know, we have a government. We have a constitution. We have a country. We have laws. God, do we have laws. We have millions and millions and millions of freaking laws, literally. The average person commits felonies every year. There's a book called Three Felonies a Day that makes the case that most of us commit a felony or three every day of our lives without even knowing it, somehow without harming anybody, because there are so many laws and restrictions that are out there. And so when you present these ideas to people, they rightfully say, but it doesn't pass muster in the real world. Well, it doesn't if you're trying to apply it to other people. So what we have to actually look at is how do these apply to us? I want to explain this in a way, and I don't want anybody to take this the wrong way, because it's really easy to take the wrong way when I say it. So, so listen up here. If you do other things when you listen to the podcast, really listen to the next couple minutes and understand what I'm actually saying, not what it sounds like I'm saying. In some ways, all political belief systems, including libertarianism, anarchism, voluntarism, agorism, are like, not the same as, like faiths or religions. We follow a faith or a religion because of a belief, and a belief that our way is inherently moral. Now, religions take on their own connotations, and they almost always involve telling other people what they should do with themselves. Okay, And statism, I believe, is truly a religion because it does tell people what they should do with themselves. I don't want you to engage in this behavior, so I will pass a law and use force by proxy, and men with guns will make sure you don't do it, or you have to give up money, or you have to give up freedom for choosing to violate that, which I didn't think you should do, even though I can't find a victim. That is that is a religion. But when we make a choice to practice the non-aggression principle and self-ownership individually, it is like a religion because it is a belief and it is a belief in inherent morality one does not become an anarchist because one wants to change the world one does not become a libertarian because one wishes to change the world not if it's real that's the that's the divergence between the libertarian party and the libertarian principles of self-ownership and non-aggression so it doesn't matter whether or not Billy is going to do what I do or Tammy is going to do what I do or see it my way, if I really believe that it is wrong of me to hurt you or take your stuff, then I will not engage in any supportive behavior of that activity. I won't do it because it's wrong. doesn't matter who else does it. doesn't matter if anybody gets voted in or out of office. doesn't matter what a policy paper says. I just don't do that. Most of us have opportunities, you know, frequently that if we wanted to, if we were dishonest, we could steal stuff and get away with it. We don't only not steal stuff because we could get in trouble for it. We also don't steal stuff in general because we believe that stealing stuff is wrong. It belongs to somebody else. It's not yours. Therefore, don't do it. When we deal with a situation with a child where they're growing up and maturing and they make a mistake and they take a friend's thing... We're not so upset that they could go to jail. We're upset that what they did was wrong, and they failed to comprehend that. 
And that's the corrective action we take. Make them understand that it was wrong so they don't do it again. Because it's a belief that's individual. That this is moral. And the principles of the non-aggression and the principles of self-ownership really only work for individuals because you believe this is the right way to be. And that's where we get into the difference between libertarian, capital L, libertarian, small L, and voluntarist, anarchist, agorist, and anything else you want to talk about when you go to the full-on extreme or absolute. I like absolute as a better definition. So let's talk about what capital L libertarian means. Capital L libertarians uh, are voting libertarians, party members that support the concept of a third political party in the United States, libertarian party, that generally moves more toward freedom and liberty than the other two parties could ever hope to. It is probably the best of the group, and it is the least successful. And the reason it is is because it's music that people like to talk about but don't like to listen to. People like to say, well, yeah, you know, Bach was great, Beethoven was great, but most people don't listen to that. It's old music, right? I know there's people that do. There's probably about the same percentage of them that will vote for a libertarian because you're wasting your vote, they don't have a chance, or more realistically, people love the idea of freedom and liberty until it impacts something that they don't want to happen. Well, you know, I'm for freedom. Yeah, I'm for freedom. Well, um, they put John in prison because he's growing some marijuana in his house. Oh, that's bad. John shouldn't do that. That's that's see that's what freedom is. Freedom is John is growing a plant. Unless John is using that plant and mashing it up to make some kind of a toxin and stabbing somebody and killing them with it, then John's minding his own business. John should be left alone. Oh no. And you can go on either side of the political spectrum, and you'll find that people will say they're for freedom and liberty right up until you stand in the way of something they're trying to accomplish through aggression. And through ignoring self-ownership, they don't want to hear it. Libertarian capital L's generally have not moved to an absolute state yet in that, and they just want to do better than what already is. And because of that, they're seen kind of in the middle, moderate milk toast thing, and that doesn't work in a society that runs on extremes. Small L libertarians run a gamut politically all over the place. Many of them are Republicans, uh, in, in party affiliation, but they, they, they work for small L libertarian ideas in the GOP. You had good luck with that. And I can say the same about Democrats, though it's less common among Democrats to be, uh, have a positive view of a libertarian outlook because libertarian outlook does fit well with the leftist view on most social things. You want to be gay? Be gay. You want to get married? Be gay? Go ahead. I don't care. But libertarianism, even small L and big L libertarianism, flies in the face of the socialist desire to distribute wealth and redistribute wealth and take money from other people and build large government. So that flies in the face of what most people pulled on the left. But that small L libertarian is all over the place. But the more one gets into that world the more one believes in the principles of non-aggression and self-ownership. Moving to the point where you're an anarchist or a voluntarist, ooh, it's scary. All that is is the belief that the belief in self-ownership and non-aggression is absolute. If you believe that, you are an anarchist. 
whether you call yourself an anarchist or not, you are. If you believe that it's never okay to take somebody else's rightfully gained property against their will, you are an anarchist. If you believe it is never okay to use force to intervene in somebody's peaceful behavior that's not bothering or victimizing anybody else, you are an anarchist. Philosophically. Philosophically. There's philosophical beliefs, and then there's practical realities. What I have to deal with them. We're going to dig into that today. But that's all... The, and that's why I say all libertarians are not anarchists, but all anarchists are libertarians. All anarchism, all voluntarism are, is the absolute nature of libertarianism. I actually mean what I say all the time, and I mean that it applies to everybody. Now, the way I found myself down this, this path was I ran for office as a libertarian party candidate for a Texas State House uh, position. I don't remember what it paid back then, but I'll tell you what it pays today. $600 a month, $7,200 a year. And I saw millions and millions of dollars being thrown around to make sure certain people got elected. And I began to poll really well. I polled better. This, I was in a district that the Republican had always won. And a Republican had really sold out his base. I don't remember his name. This was a good year in a good district to take a shot at this. He had basically backed a backdoor income tax in the state of Texas. Now, you don't do that in Texas, and you really do not do that. I mean, you really do not do that as a Republican in Texas. So when this came out, even though the, the, the state party was really in on it, because this guy was a, a fairly big-time guy in the, uh, the state house. I'd been there a long time, like 20 years. The... Uh, the Republicans turned on him instantly. They used him as fodder to see if he could get it done. And then, you know, you don't do income tax in the state of Texas. It doesn't happen. So they, they turned on him quick and dumped his ass and, and picked some girl and installed her uh, as the, the Republican nominee. And in Texas, these, these positions, you're installed into them. And I'll explain that more in just a second. Well, I was approached by the Libertarian Party. Will you consider running for this district? And they explained the whole situation. I mean, I said yes. So I put together a, a full-on legitimate campaign. Well, I also didn't report any fundraising because I didn't do any fundraising. There was no fundraising. Um, not a single person donated a dollar to my campaign. I didn't feel that I wanted to do that. But apparently there's paperwork you have to fill out to say you didn't do it to say you didn't do it. The person I was running against in the Republican Party noticed that I started pulling up near 20%. Now, they were still going to win no problem whatsoever, but they dug into things and reported me for failing to disclose fundraising, and I was fined even when I wrote a letter to the board and said I didn't do any, and they said that's fine, you still should have filled out this form, and they fined me $500. And then this was used against me, even though I was never going to win, I was accused publicly of committing uh, campaign uh, fraud, and proof was that I paid a fine for it. And I really was disgusted with it. I didn't even want to be involved. By the time the election came, I didn't even care. I don't even, I don't even know where I finished. I didn't even look. I didn't care at that point. And I was, all, I was relating this one night to a contact of mine uh, at kind of an after, a dinner type thing, um, a business mixer. And our attorney for the company, Neil and I had, a guy named Jeff, uh, was a major partner in one of the largest law firms in Dallas-Fort Worth, leans over, puts his hand on my shoulder, says, I know exactly 
who you're talking about, that girl they put in down there. Now, if you want to run as a Republican next time and you want that, that position, I can make sure you get it. Now, this was not bravado. This man was dead serious. He's like, I know the right people. We'll just, we'll just primary her ass out. And if you're running as a Republican in that district, you're going to run. You're going to win. If you want to do it, I'll take care of it. I felt disgusted. I felt like his hand on my shoulder was literally like one of those things where you see Satan making a deal with people. Like, I had a totally different view of him after that. I didn't want to talk to him ever again. And it was the last of any belief that I had that government could solve anybody's problems. And I was done. And that was before I even started TSP. And that's why I started out kind of as being a political atheist in the very beginning of this show, being very anti-political, though it's claimed as always being right-wing. I'm not right-wing. I am for actual freedom and liberty. You can't be right or left and be for liberty because being right or left will require that you violate the rights of somebody on the other side. So... In all this and over the years, I really have seen the trap of politics, and I can explain it to you just about any issue out there, but especially the illegal immigration debate. And the way to see the trap of politics is watch libertarians and anarchists argue with each other over a political issue. So you have people trying to come to this country illegally. Some of them are here because they just want a better life. Some of them are coming here because they have family members that are here. Some of them are coming here because they just want to. Some of them are coming here because they are part of, of international drug cartels. It runs the gamut. There's this whole, the whole belief that all of them are evil, uh, MS-13 gang members, is stupid. And the whole concept that all of them, or even you know, the vast majority, like 98%, are like lily-white you know, saints that are just coming here for a better life is also stupid. Because people are people, and if you get a big group of people anywhere, you're going to get a big mix of people from bad to worse to good. But what the one side of the anarcho-libertarian world will say is, but we should not have any belief that people should be obstructed from traveling. You know, they should be able to come here and, and do whatever they want as long as they don't hurt anybody, and most of them aren't going to hurt anybody. You'll have the other side of that group that'll say, well, that would all be good and well if they didn't qualify for welfare payments, if they weren't eventually given ability to influence elections and vote, and thereby use the force of the government that is here against us. And both sides have a completely valid point. And I'm not even going to dig into it who's right or wrong. It just shows you the trap. You can't expect, from a policy standpoint, to be able to take an anarchist or libertarian position all the time and not have it end up actually biting you, you know, having it bite the hand that feeds it, so to say. Because the reality is government in this country does exist, There are over a million laws. You do commit a felony every day. If the government singled you out and wanted to prove you broke the law and put you in prison, almost anybody, if it looked at you hard enough, it could do that. Your property will be taken, and it is being taken right now every day. If you look at your tax footprint, it's a hell of a lot more than what you pay in income tax to your state and federal governments or property taxes. Everything you do is taxed. You drive, it's taxed. You buy a case of beer, it's taxed. 
You know, I mean, you turn the light on, it's taxed. You make a phone call, it's taxed. And it all is theft. It all is a, a, a ignoring the non-aggression principle and ignoring your right to self-determination and self-ownership. <coughs> That's, that is the way that it is. And every time we go into a policy, as libertarians will disagree with each other vehemently, and fight with each other more than Democrats and Republicans fight with each other, even though we agree most on, on principles. And the reason that we argue with each other isn't because we're such a diverse group. It isn't because we're all so committed. It isn't because we're stupid. It isn't because we don't know how to work together. It's because of the trap. We're trying to live by a moral code in a world that doesn't respect that moral code. In some ways, in a far different way, in some ways it's far different, but in some ways very similar to the Puritans. I want to live my way. Do whatever the hell you want. Leave me alone. And it, we're trying to argue about what that should mean in their world with their policies that are completely counter to our own. This is why a lot of, Nicole asked, this is why a lot of libertarians seem like assholes. Because when you're constantly tormented, when you have this ideology, and there's no way to make it practically implemented across the broader spectrum, you're going to be angry, and when you're angry long enough, you're going to be an asshole. So what we have to really understand is, in many ways, the principle of self-ownership is actually more important than the principle of non-aggression. The, the, again, the, one of the main reasons for that is, The NAP talks about how other people should be treated and how you should treat other people and therefore how other people should treat you. But the NAP will be violated on you daily. So you have to accept that. So the NAP is a great principle and it can be summed up in the golden rule of doing unto others. You'll notice though The do unto others, as you would have them do unto you, actually can work for the statist. It can work for the statist. And it can work for the statist because the statist does want these controls on liberty. The, the statist does want the use of force and violence. The golden rule will actually work for the libertarian because the libertarian doesn't want those things. What the NAP does, that the golden rule doesn't, is to find that which you should not do. The golden rule leaves it to you to determine. So if you if you like being punched in the face, the golden rule totally leaves it open to go punch somebody in the face, metaphorically or actually. Some people like to beat each other up. Maybe not to the point of being in a hospital, or maybe they do in organized sports. But think of like just, you know, Dance clubs with razor, everybody smacks each other around, mosh pits or whatever. Some people like that, some people don't. Well, if you just do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But the non-aggression principle is specific. Don't hurt people. Don't take their stuff. But the principle of self-ownership is the part that you actually control in spite of others' actions. When it comes to you yourself. We'll just take for granted that you're going to follow the nap. Since you say you're going to, since you say you believe in it, you're not going to do things to other people that would involve hurting them or taking their stuff when they don't want you to.
You can't control anybody else choosing to do that, though. But what you have the most control over is your ability to realize that you do own yourself. And you control that in spite of other people's actions. It doesn't matter that they're going to tax you. You still have the responsibility of figuring out how to prevent them from stealing as much as you can. It doesn't matter that you can't live completely the way that you want to live. It's on you to figure out how to live as close to that mark as possible. And you don't get to blame anybody else because you own yourself. You own yourself. And so if, you, if you really believe that, then when something bad happens to you, you have to choose the most intelligent way to react to it and the most intelligent way to design your life according to it since you know it's not going away. You, if you own a piece of land and you would like it to be a corn farm, but that land is the side of a mountain, you can't grow corn there. You have to accept the reality that's a permanent natural structure. And you have to figure out, well, what can I do with this? And that's how you have to look at life if you believe in self-ownership. It would be great if people didn't hurt each other and take their stuff. It would be great if everybody understood that we all have self-ownership and respected that in other people. But since they don't, all I can do is take control of what I have, which is myself, and deal with everybody's bullshit, and in the end still take responsibility 100% of myself for what I do or do not achieve in my own life. Self-ownership is about personal responsibility, not what someone else should do. If you are using words in your daily life, well, they, these other people, those Democrats, those liberals, those Republicans, those conservatives, and then following that up with why you do not have or why you are not where you wish to be, you do not believe that you own yourself. You're passing the buck. That's why this principle is so important. Once accepted, your life gets better because you start actually controlling it and designing it within the restrictions that are there. Self-ownership drives home that freedom applies to everyone or it's not freedom. And then you start realizing you actually do, when you really believe in self-ownership, and you really realize how much you are violated from owning yourself on a daily basis, then you feel compelled to actually follow the nap. It will lead you to, that's why you don't have to worry about it. It will lead you there. You'll realize that if what people want in their group is the freedom to pray to a certain God, it's not freedom unless you have a freedom not to. If they want to have a certain belief of the way to live their life beyond don't hurt people and don't take their stuff, Do as thou wilt and it harm none. As they don't want to, if they want to go beyond that, you should abstain from this thing in your life. You should abstain from this action in your life. You should abs then, unless you have the right to ignore that and live your way, it's not freedom. It's tyranny of the majority. Since most people want to live this way, we'll just call it freedom and screw the people that don't want to live this way. It's not freedom. So and, and it's not about the fact that other people are doing that, because they're going to. We have a government that does it all the time. You can't change that. You can change how you participate in it, if at all, and you can change what you do in response to it. Self-ownership employs Jeff Lawton's permaculture principle of if the designer is good, the more restrictions, 
the more eloquent the design. Jeff explained this one time when he was talking about how he built dams and swales on a piece of property. And there were certain restrictions. The best places to put this series of like four dams were right up against the property line. And that made it hard to fit them all in. And then in connecting them with swales, which are ditches that move water from one place to the other when there's a rain event, there was a certain way to do it. The problem was that when the, everything overflowed and the water left the property and went onto the neighbor's property, what, what the neighbor thought about it, that wasn't a problem. There's what's called a catchment. A valley is a catchment. And the water was leaving from a different catchment than it started in. And there was a law that said you can't do that. You have to return it to its original catchment. And he finagled and figured out how with, by laying a couple sandbags in one of the swales to push the final destination water back to its original catchment before it left the property. And when he was teaching this magnificent you know, lesson in design, he said that. And I don't think he really sat down and thought about it. It just came out. The more restrictions, if the designer's up to the task, the more eloquent the design. That's self-ownership. That's the permaculture principle brought to the world of anarchy and libertarianism. You don't get to determine what the restrictions are. What you get is the opportunity to design around them. To say to yourself, how can I design my life accepting this immoral reality to live as moral as possible and to have as much as possible of what I want in my life and since you own yourself that responsibility falls 100% in your lap whether you like it or not and here's the thing, that's always been the case whether you knew it or not didn't matter when people thought the earth was flat, it was round what you thought or didn't know didn't matter, the reality was the reality when people thought the earth was the center of the universe, it didn't matter. It wasn't. When people thought the sun moved around the earth, it didn't matter. It was already the other way. It's not like we figured it out and it changed. So you have always been 100% responsible for you. And it's always fallen on you. And it's always been in your lap. And it's always been on your shoulders. And it's always been your responsibility. And if you don't believe me today when I tell you this, it's still true. There's nothing you can do about it except accept it, embrace it, and use it. So how can we do this? What are some ways we can do this? One, try solving any and all problems you can solve outside the state systems. Number one. Now, again, we live in a world where this government... These restrictions, these boundaries, these programs, and this constant theft of property exist. And you may be in a situation where you have to use the state systems. Because maybe somebody decided to use them against you, and the only way to defend yourself is with them. It's a lot like jujitsu or judo. I'm not going to hit you, but if you try to hit me, I'm going to use what you're throwing at me and put it back on you. Don't want to. You brought this on yourself. So you can't always do this, but the mindset should always be, how can I fix this thing without the state? I don't like the, the neighbor's fence leaning over. I should talk to him first before I call code enforcement. And I know people who have taken the other approach, and they ended up in more trouble than their neighbor did, because when the code officer showed up, he looked at everybody's shit, and they had bigger problems that they didn't know about. 
I have one friend, for, unfortunately he's, he's passed away at this point, but he ended up having to turn, tear down the, an entire you know, overhang porch. It was a beautiful little place to sit in the afternoons because it violated an easement. It had been there for 10 years. No one ever said a word about it. But when he called code enforcement on his neighbor, the code officer walked up and down the road and wrote him up for an easement infraction. So that just tells you, right, there's so many examples of people calling the police for help. The person that called the police for help got arrested or shot or bit or sprayed or tased. You only go to the state's systems when there's no alternative. Next, build a business. Why do you think I'm so big on that? Financial freedom is freedom in our world. But more importantly, when you build a business, you change The, the, the reality of how taxes, which is theft, are paid. Understand the tax code, even the revised, more friendly Trump tax code, is a huge pile of crap. It's massive. If you look at all of the provisions in the tax code, it's this massive stack. I say 10%, but it's really less than 10% of that tells you what you have to do and how much you have to pay. The other 90% of it is how you get out of it. When you build a business and get intelligent about the way you manage your taxes, you start spending more time paying attention to the 90% of how you get out of it than a 10% of how you have to pay. Does that mean that you don't get your money stolen? No, but it means you get less of your money stolen. Imagine that you had a store and somebody ran and was running off With two bags of your cash. You didn't have a gun on you, so you couldn't stop him. He was bigger than you, so you couldn't fight him. But he was running past you, and as he ran past you, wouldn't you just grab the bag that you could and be happy that you at least saved that, even though the person stole the other bag? And if you knew that one bag had a lot more money in it, wouldn't you grab that one? And wouldn't you accept the reality that, hey, I don't want this to happen, but it was happening, and at least I saved this portion That is how you design this portion of your life. You're not going to get out of paying taxes 100%. But if you can reduce what's stolen from you by half or more, shouldn't you? And doesn't that give them less power in what they do in violating your self-ownership? See, it's, it's a double-edged sword taxation. Not only did they take what you worked for against your will through the use of force and the threat of violence at the point of a gun. Not only did they do that, But then they take it and they use it to make government bigger so they can do more of it. Every penny you take from them is one penny less they have to use against you. And one penny you have more in your life to use for you. I also believe we should be developing micro-economies, practicing agorism. Agorism is easy as an idea to, to, to spread. People that are like, well, the government should do this, and the government should do that. And I think the rich should pay more taxes. And I don't think these people should be able to do this thing over here. People are like that all the time. And they find out some guys running an ice cream stand and doing an all-cash business, and they're like, oh, that's great. I mean, there are the people that are so indoctrinated, like, he should pay his fair share. Shut up. He's got out of being robbed is all he did. But most people, when they hear that, I mean, I came from a family, people don't believe this, but my family, especially on my dad's side, were all Democrats. On my mom's side, they were all Democrats. They were FDR, JFK Democrats. And they all like, oh, the rich should pay more, and the government should do that. I mean, that's how they all were. 
But when I was a teenager and I got a job working for, for Muskrat Purcell taking parts off junk cars, and they heard that I was getting paid under the table as a kid, you know, they all said, well, that's great. You don't have to pay taxes. That's agorism. That was agorism. The young kid knew how a wrench worked, goes to an old man that ran a, a junk shop. He said, I'll leave you a list of parts and what cars are on. Go get those parts, put them in the bin, and I'll pay you once a week. That's agorism. He's also selling those parts, making a, a profit on them. He wasn't selling them for what he paid me to take them off and what he had in the junk car. He's making money off of them. And I guarantee you, old Muskrat was selling the majority of those parts for cash, too. That was agorism. That was a microeconomy. It wasn't the only thing he did. He did a bunch of little things like that, plus he had a job. But he had kind of a worthless piece of ground that was old coal company ground that he had inherited. And he could put a bunch of junk cars there, and he figured out how to make some money with it. How many different ways can that be done? And people, I think, in the in the, the libertarian anarcho world, they a lot of times they kind of crap on agorism. I've heard people say things like, well, you know, those that little couple there that are selling those tacos door to door, they're not going to change anything. They're not going to alter, you know, they're not going to they're not going to work on the big ideas that we're working on. Actually, they're going to do more. Because every dollar they put in their pocket, they can use in their own life as their own designer for their own belief in their own self-ownership. And the, the difference they make in their own lives and the influence they have on others through positive versus negative actions exceeds anything you're going to do by talking about yourself like you're important. So you're full of shit, first of all. Even in the, even in the grand scope of things, the person with the little side taco business that runs their own microeconomy, The guy that says, yeah, I know I'm supposed to have an FFL to reload ammo for people and have an ammo business, but he reloads ammo for his six buddies, and no one gives a damn. He has more impact on his life and their life than you do by talking about bullshit that don't matter. They ain't ever going to change anything. Well, Gorism is incredibly powerful. Because it focuses on the individual and the people within their sphere of influence versus talking to hear yourself. So develop those microeconomies. Use cryptocurrency. Use gold. Use silver. Use barter. I don't use anything except their money. And use, when you are using their money and you can use cash, and I don't mean paying for it without going into debt. That too, by the way. Stay out of debt is an, I should add that. Because there's a whole additional, it, it's not even a single thing. It is a Medusa. Debt is like this whole new Medusa's head and hundreds of snakes that entwine and ensnare and empower, govern, and empower the financial institutions and disempower the individual. But when I say cashier, I'm not just talking about avoiding debt. I'm talking about if you have to use U.S. Federal Reserve notes, pay them with bills. Especially someone you know is going to use that bill to pay somebody else with a bill, and, and it's all staying between you, them, and the fence post. Next, kind of back to solving your own problems, but let's get proactive with solving our own problems. Let's draft our own contracts, whether they're Ethereum smart contracts or a piece of paper you guys write it down on together. When you enter into some sort of an agreement with somebody, write a contract. And both of you look at it and agree on what you agree on and disagree with what you disagree until you come to something you can both live with. And I talk about non-binding arbitration and binding arbitration and staying out of the court system. But if it's something simple, 
and you both trust somebody, why not go ahead in your contract if the other party's okay with it, so you're not violating their rights? Name your own arbitrator. You look, you know, if you and I get into a point where we can't agree on, on the way this is, we both agree that Bill is fair. Bill, we talk to Bill, and Bill's willing to do this if it comes to it, as long as we respect Bill's final decision. And then even if we continue to argue about it, we walk away and leave Bill the hell out of it after that. Bill's done it. Bill's okay. Let's point Bill right now as our arbitrator. 90% of the time or more, when there's a disagreement on a contract, if you have a third-party independent arbitrator like a Bill, not some company that makes a bunch of freaking money by pretending to be a court, but a guy that's actually like, look, I like both of y'all. And I've listened to what both of y'all say, and this is what I think y'all should do to, to, to make this right. 90% of the time, even if they don't follow Bill's advice, they're going to stay out of court. They're going to get a clean, clear perspective. Because when you go to an attorney, don't ever forget that this is, this is taught to attorneys in, in law school. Your best client, the one you can retire on, is rich, angry, and wrong. So of course they're going to tell you you have a case, especially if you have money. Or especially if there's a potential to gain income and money on the other side. It could ruin your life, but they get the bill. And the bill gets paid, so they're happy. That's their job. So draft your own contracts. Point your own arbitrators. How about this one? How about this we all know from when we were kids? You know, don't hurt people and don't hurt the stuff. That's one thing we learned when we were kids. Don't talk about it much in the school system because, well, then you'd have to explain how it's done all the time and why it's okay when other people do it. But how about MYOB? Mind your own damn business. One of the greatest ways in the world to make your life better is mind your own damn business. So-and-so said this on TV. I don't give a shit. Does so-and-so pay my bills? No. Does so-and-so lay in my bed? No. Does, especially when so-and-so's not even a politician. So-and-so is a football player or an actress. I don't give a gnat's ass. I don't care. But they said they didn't stand. They did stand. They did this. They, they don't mean jack diddly MFing squat to me, and they don't mean it to you either unless you empower them by allowing them to. And what that when you empower somebody, you give something up to do that. You in, you've given them a power over you, therefore you seceded that power to them. Sometimes that makes sense. If they're a good leader and they're helping you, But some bitch saying something you don't like on Twitter, you know what? Giving that person power is stupid, so don't do it. Mind your own damn business. And when you mind your own business, I'm talking about more than just not worrying about what other people do, are doing. I'm talking about actually minding, as in seeing to, the business that is your business to see to. Practicing self-ownership. Mind your business. What if you took that energy and channeled it into, I'm going to build this, I'm going to mind my economic business, whether it's actually a business business or whether it's your investments or whether it's building a budget and not spending money you do not have. Mind your business. And then influence others to take positive actions. It's amazing to me that people think it makes sense to influence others through the use of force but they spend almost no time trying to influence others with the results in their own life. I don't have to pass a law that says, hey, 
you know, 50% of this audience should give a shot at going out and creating a business for themselves. No, by setting the example and doing it myself, a lot of you went, you know what, I really like what Jack's got going on. I'd like some of that shit in my life. I can get you to do way more by modeling positive behavior than anybody will ever get you to do by passing a law. The reason people violate the law all the time is because people don't agree with the laws. People look at laws and say, first of all, do I agree with that? Second of all, am I going to get caught? Third of all, did I even know it was a law? The reason the three felonies a day book exists is because you're breaking laws you don't even know are laws. Clearly they're not important. If you're breaking the law, no one's complaining about it. No one notices it. You don't know you're doing it. The supposed other party doesn't know you're doing it. Why do we need that law? We don't. So a lot of the laws we have on the books don't even actually get anything to happen or prevent anything from happening. We got all kinds of laws that say you can't do drugs. People are doing drugs left and right. The person that, that, that gets to the bottom, hits rock bottom on drugs and builds their life back and models that behavior to the person struggling with drugs does more to stamp out the abuse of drugs than any law ever could hope to. Influence others to take positive actions by taking them yourself. Don't delude yourself. In many ways, we individually are not that important. One of the main reasons I see people get so upset when you say, when somebody says, well, so-and-so said that, I don't give a shit. Or, I'm voting for it. I'm not going to vote. Ah, they flip out. You think you're more important than you are if you're acting that way. If you don't pay attention to the news for a month, you know what's going to happen? Absolutely nothing that wasn't going to happen anyway. Other than your stress will go down and you might get more shit done in your life. But, I mean, it's not like, oh, look. like People act like somebody's sitting there and they're like, uh, control, we have a problem. Well, what's the problem? Dave in Sheboyganville has stopped watching Fox News. Well, um, is he watching CNN instead? Because it's okay if Dave switches teams. No, he's... He's not watching any news at all. He doesn't give a shit anymore. The world is going to end. Dave, stop paying attention. You're delusional. And that's how you see people are so attached to the fact that what they think matters. What you think only matters to you and to the people around you. And what matters even more is what you do. What you think doesn't matter. What you pay attention to doesn't matter to the totality of the thing itself. When I said, when Ebola started up, right? Oh, there's been three cases. Just shut up. Shut up. You have less than a 1% chance of getting Ebola in Ebola Ground Zero in Africa if you're a doctor helping people with Ebola. So your odds of getting Ebola in the United States are less than flipping 1,000% of a zero. Oh, and people lost their minds. Do you know why? They didn't really think they were going to get Ebola. They thought it was important for them to care. Like they mattered. Like again, what's happening? Debbie and Debbie in Philadelphia, she's not worried about Ebola. Oh my God, Ebola's going to be everywhere now. Somebody get Debbie back in the fold. Nobody gives a shit, Debbie. Nobody gives a shit. Nobody cares. It's delusional thinking. Don't think you're more important than you are in that respect. Realize that all your importance is in the things that you can do and can get done and can influence and that actually matter in your life. You know what? Who's going to be the next president? Don't give a shit. It's not going to change your life. 
Donald Trump, the people that are like have trumped hard, right? Trump anger resistance disorder. And after two years, this disease has metastasized and metamorphed, and it's come back. It was a it was an epidemic of TARD, and it's come back as a pandemic of recurrent extreme Trump anger resistance disorder, retard. And these people are, Donald Trump's a Nazi, Donald Trump in Russia. Ah! How is your life different because of Donald Trump? They don't have an answer. And don't think this is pro-Trump, because I didn't like Obama either. Obama's a Muslim, Obama's birth certificate, Obama is a... Ah! Okay, how is your life different because of Barack Obama? In general, it's not. The whole system is what it is. Voting and convincing you to be involved is the means by which they, they, they have power over you. Authority is only actual authority when it is submitted to. And the slave suggestion box, they call the ballot box, is that whereby you make your suggestions and feel that now you've signed the contract. You have to follow the law. You're a participant. Do it if you want to. I'm, notice I never said not to vote today. I'm not going to either. I'm just telling you what you're doing. You make your own decisions with it. I'm not going to tell you how to live, live your life. I'm not going to delude myself. I'm not that important. But I will tell you to do this for yourself. Take care of yourself. Reboot. Take a walk. Turn the TV off. Hell, turn me off. I'm going to be gone for two weeks anyway. Go be with your family. You know, Whatever does it for you. Go fishing. Go hunting. Take a walk in the woods. Go work on your aquaponics system. Find a hobby that you actually enjoy, that you don't turn into a business. I will never turn my tropical fish hobby into a business. I might sell a fish or two, because if I can pay for my fish food and my electricity, fine, I'm not making a business out of it. I don't want to do that. Take the byproduct and throw it on eBay and sell it, or on a Craigslist and sell it to a yuppie, sure. That's easy. It doesn't take any real effort. But I want some things that are just mine. Decouple. Realize that even though I said you're not that important, you are everything to yourself. And you're probably most of everything to your family that cares about you. So take care of yourself. Eat right. Exercise. You know? I enjoy an old beverage, but don't kill a bottle a day. You're going to blow your liver up. Don't don't live on sugar and sweets. Take care of yourself. Reboot. But the biggest thing that you can do, if you actually believe in self-ownership, is define your vision and your version of success for yourself and achieve it. What is success to you? See, success to me is, is going to be different than it is for you. One of my good friends, Brian Black of ITS Tactical, When he started building ITS, he was about a year behind me. And I had achieved quite a bit of success by the time I had met him. You know, tens of thousands of downloads. I was, you know, when I first met Brian, I was six months from going full-time. And I actually was ready to go full-time. And my partner in the business I was involved in at the time basically said, will you stay till the end of the year and do this one thing for me? Take over this division, do this one thing, put it in order, and will you do that before you leave? And I said, yes, I will. So I was already ready to be done. And I said to him, your site will be bigger than mine in two to three years. 
And he was, well, really? What? Because he was just getting started. He really didn't even know what he was going to become yet. And I said, well, you know, we want different things. You're only talking about employees. I don't want any employees. Having employees and leveraging labor is going to allow you to build a bigger business than I'll ever build. I've already done that. I don't like that. I don't want that. So I'll always limit how big I can be because I don't want to do this other thing. Because you're willing to and because you're smart, because you're on the right track, because you're dedicated, you're going to build a large, successful financial concern. And it was really obvious to me because I knew what I wanted and I knew what I didn't want. So there are people that say, well, Jack, isn't that a mistake? I mean, look, let's say that you had brought employees on early on. Let's say you had professional editors. Let's say you leveraged other things. Let's say you had sales representatives that were building this program bigger than it can be with just you, and you were doing these other things and reaching out, and you were managing that, and you just basically were the talent and set up a pool around you to do all the work, and you just did what you're doing right now speaking. Wouldn't you be bigger? Yes, I'd be bigger, but I wouldn't be my version of success. I want to get out of bed in the morning and go, you know what, today I want to spend two hours in my yard screwing around with the ducks and shoot a couple videos, and I'm going to put the show out a couple hours later, and I don't give a shit if anybody doesn't like it. That comes with some sacrifices on the revenue side of things, but it makes me happy. And there's people like, Jack, I don't want a business. Then you shouldn't have one. But what do you want? It's easy to say what you don't want. Sometimes we talk ourselves out of things because we don't know what we're, we're talking ourselves out of. But, I mean, all through my business career, I had partners and people that I worked with that always seemed to want more for me than I wanted for myself. That's what they thought. But what I thought was they don't know what I want. They have no idea what I really want. And they're, because what I want is so radically different from what they want, they can't even conceive of what I want. Number one thing you can do if you believe in self-ownership is to sit down and define for yourself, what is, what is Bill's perfect life? What is Tammy's perfect life? I know, Tammy, I told you, no one gives a shit about what you think, but the people around you actually do. Tammy, whoever Tammy is in Philadelphia. Ironically, there probably is a Tammy in Philadelphia going right now. I know he's not talking about me, but it sure feels like he is, right? That's how TV preachers do. You just take a common name and a common place, and yeah. Um, <laughs> I could really be wealthy if I didn't have morals. I'd be a televangelist or I'd be a political spin doctor, either way. But I have morals, so I do what I do, right? And you should do what you do based on your morals and your desires and what you want to do for yourself. What does it look like? The way to do this is sit down, get a piece of paper, handwrite this, don't type it. I woke up and, and describe your perfect day. Your perfect day. The day you can't live every day. Because it just isn't practical. Even if you were a multi-billionaire, you couldn't live that way. But what is that perfect day? Then design the life that results in as many days that are as close to that as possible. And then go freaking... That is a design. That is a design. Go execute the design. And adjust until you get as close as you can to that thing. That's the number one way to give the system the middle finger. That's the number one way to have self-determination and self-ownership. And you'll find if you do that, you will mind your own business because you'll have to to be successful. You'll give a hell of a lot less about what other people are doing as long as they leave you alone. And you'll actually start to embrace freedom. You'll actually start to embrace freedom because you'll realize what we said earlier. 
that freedom isn't real unless freedom applies to everybody and everything that doesn't hurt anybody else. Otherwise, it's not freedom. Otherwise, it's counterfeit freedom. It's sold to you as an illusion of freedom. And people can only do that if you let them. That's one thing you have to understand. That most things in your life that you don't want there, but that's there anyway, that somebody else did to you, you let it in. And even if they did it to you, and even if there was nothing you could do about it when it happened, you can do something about it now. You choose how you let it affect you for the rest of your life. I know people that have been divorced for 30 years, and they still blame their spouse for their current life. Imagine that. Well, if so-and-so had, that was 30 years ago, shut up and get on with your life. And they can't do it because it's scary. That's the reality today that I need you to understand. Freedom is horrifying. And the longer you've kept yourself in the cage, you notice I said you've kept yourself in the cage, the longer you, the more terrifying freedom is. It's terrifying to realize that you actually are responsible for everything. A lot of times people have a lot of guilt because they look back at the mistakes and they realize, well, I really do get blamed for all this too. Even the things other people did, I chose how I reacted to them. I chose to close in or close off or use it as an excuse for the next five years instead of the next five minutes. But the other thing that's terrifying is realizing I really do have to let all these other people live whatever crazy-ass way they want to. Guess what? It's not that scary once you accept it because they're already doing it. See, again, I told you all this stuff is. It already is this way. It's already this way, right? It's already this way, Neo. Just eat the pill. Just eat the freaking pill. The pill doesn't change the reality. It reveals it. It is what it is. So what are you going to do now? Last week before the winter shutdown, we're heading into that winter downtime. Do you own yourself? It's one thing to respect other people's rights to self-ownership. Do you respect your right to self-ownership? Do you take responsibility for your right to self-ownership? Do you accept the reality that it's always been true? What are you going to design? What are you going to execute? What are you going to become? I look forward to your jack, your jerk letters off of this one, folks, to tell me what you've become and why I'm a jerk that you're living more of the life that you were born to live, more of the life that you want, that you're living better if times get tougher, even if they don't. That wraps up today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. And I told you the story at the beginning. It's true. I didn't know this is what I was going to talk about when I started today. It came from a suggestion from expert council member Nicole Sauce. And I uh, put together the outline about 10 minutes after she came up with the suggestion. So I hope it came off well. With that, if you like the show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can help support our efforts is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That little website is T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. And there you can see my items of the day uh, reviewed. You can see all of the items I've ever reviewed, categorized and alphabetical and all that good stuff. And if it's there, I own it, I use it, I spent my money on it, I'd do it again or I wouldn't put it up there. Today I got one of the all-time best stocking stuffers, white elephant gifts, etc. And it's 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 twelve bucks, guys. 
It's the Winchester 51-piece gunsmith screwdriver set. And yes, Winchester markets it. And yes, it will do a lot for you with your guns. And it is marketed as a gunsmith screwdriver set. You know what it is? It's a screwdriver set. It has 50 bits and a, and a screwdriver handle. And it won't do every single thing you could ever want to do, but it'll do most. You're not going to find a lot of things that you can't do with it. It's got 12 different size flathead bits, 8 hex bits, 4 Phillips bits, 2 extra long Phillips bits, 7 Torx bits, 4 Robertson's bits, 4 tri-wing bits, 3 clutch bits, 2 spline bits, 2 torque bits, and 1 1-inch socket adapter. That's, you know, a lot for $12. It's not super high-end stuff. You know, it really is. And, I mean, um, for my my uh, personal uh, kit, um, I have kind of high-end tools. But, you know, when you need that one stupid little fitting and you can reach into your glove box and find this, it's it's a lifesaver. And so I have one in, in the... In the the uh, glove box of both my vehicles. We have a junk drawer. I have one in there. I have one out in my shop. I have one in my boat. And I have one in my kind of range kit for going to the gun range. And and that way, no matter what happens, there's just, you know, whatever I need, I can I can get it done with this thing. And it, that's why I said it's not just really for guns. And so if you got like a white elephant thing coming up or something, I don't know most people they wouldn't be happy with this thing. Uh, and I have sold... This is one of those things, because it's inexpensive, because it makes so much sense. I mean, people are like, 12 bucks, why not? I've sold hundreds of these things. I've had zero complaints. I think part of that's expectation. I'm sure somebody stripped a bid or something, but it's 12 bucks. And, boy, I'd rather have it than not have it when it comes to these things. So check it out, the Winchester 51-piece gunsmith screwdriver set, item of the day. You can find the item of the day, uh, the most recent reviews. Uh, and, and always help us no matter what you buy if you do your online shopping at tspath.com. That brings us to our song today. It's Christmas song week. We got a guy that could sing the phone book, I think, literally and get a number one hit or at least a top ten hit, George Strait. Guys had more hits than I think hits exist for just about any. I mean, the only person you can talk about, I'd say uh, in country music, Alabama's probably had close to as many hits as George Strait, if not as many. I know one time they were tied with 40 each. And I guess in pop music, Elton John. I mean, George Strait's just the man. And so anything he sings is going to sound good. And this song is a Christmas song called Old Time Christmas. And it's just a good Christmas song. It invokes a lot of memories you probably have as a child and Christmas trees and presents and stockings and all the traditional Christmas stuff. When I was listening to this song, getting ready for the show, I was thinking... Did I change or did we change when it comes to Christmas in this in this country? Because I know we all grow up, you know, when you're little and you believe in Santa and you put out the cookies and the reindeer chow and all and you run out and the cookies are gone, there's a crumble left and wow, Santa came and, you know, ho, ho, ho and all that. You, you grow up and you kind of change your beliefs a little bit. You still wake up. You're 10 years old, man. You still wake up and go... It's Christmas. You run out of all the stuff under the tree. And, of course, you're going to mature from that level. And your parents did by the time you were that little kid. But don't you feel like Christmas has changed in our country? That maybe we all hark back and want that nostalgic old-time Christmas, but it's getting harder and harder to find? If you think about it, the movie, well, the comedy movie, one of the great Christmas movies of all time, Christmas Vacation, 
it, it, with all the slapstick and everything in that, what that movie was really about is one guy really wanting it to be the way it was when he was a kid and trying to make it that way. And, of course, we can't make something like that that way. But, I mean, 20 years ago, people weren't stepping on their fellow man to get a TV at Walmart on Black Friday. It feels like a lot of it has changed. But since we own ourselves, we don't have to let it change. We can rise above all of that crap and still have that old-time Christmas with our family and the people we care about. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough for even if they don't. Tricycles and bicycles, candy canes and candlelight. Trying to stay awake all night to catch a glimpse of Santa's reindeer. Mama baking, sister making, angels in the falling snow. Now it seems so long ago. I wish they all were here We'd have an old-time Christmas An old-time Christmas Just like the ones from yesterday We leave the world behind us Let the Spirit find For old times' sake Friends singing, bells ringing Snowman standing in the yard It's a living Christmas card Captured in our hearts forever Friends scatter, it won't matter, the magic never melts away. It only takes a Christmas day to make it reappear. So have an old-time Christmas, an old-time Christmas, just like the one. Yesterday, we'll leave the world behind us and let the spirit find us and have an old time Christmas for old time's sake. So leave the world behind you and let the spirit find. Have an old-time Christmas for old-time's sake.